This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. This is North, 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 North South. North South. Jason Kawakami here for the North and South podcast with my co-host, who's frankly a Japanese celebrity by now. Not He's not a celebrity in America or Los Angeles. He's the LA Times, Dylan Hernandez. But uh, we, re- we re- respect that. We need that. We need big Japanese community support for Dylan Hernandez, as always. Uh, but we will start. We got to start with the Super Bowl. We haven't really talked about, certainly not the result of it, certainly not what happened in that game. Uh, and the aftermath. I think, you know, we're several days removed from the game, so we don't have to talk specifically about the game. Unless Dylan wants to bring it up, there's certainly controversies about that game. Uh, but the 49ers pretty quickly fire Steve Wilkes, and it wasn't exactly because of what happened in that game. I think that's something to, something to do with it. With Shanahan not liking some of the play calls, I had to call timeout in overtime because he didn't like a play call. Uh, maybe uh, Nick Bosa's comments about them not being prepared for the Mahomes keepers on two huge plays had something to do with, or at least were reflections of their feelings about Steve Wilkes. Uh, now they go off on a on a defensive corner search, and there is some there's some talk. Dylan Hernandez, the third leading candidate, could be a ch- former Chargers coach, Brandon Staley. And you know my feelings about Brandon Staley. You know Brandon Staley. Is this the ultimate fix? Is this the perfect candidate to save the 49ers defense? I mean, look, when when Staley had talent with the Rams, right? I mean, they had the they had the best defense in the NFL. I mean, it's basically what got him the Chargers job. Um you know, to be honest, I mean, I was kind of right uh, surprised. That, you know, and again, right, obviously, you you guys have kind of the local perspective. You guys watch the, these teams like a lot closer. Uh, you know, kind of as a you know like a complete neutral here in terms of both geography, you know, and stuff like that. Uh, you know, obviously, a bunch of my colleagues and I were watching this game together, and it was just a great game, right? And looked like both teams played well. You know, it's one of those things. Hey, somebody's got to lose. Um, and so I was just a little bit surprised, like, wait, they fired a guy after that game? You know, uh, yeah, not yeah. quite understanding, I guess, right? The, you know, again, the, we haven't been following this on a week-by-week basis, obviously, like you guys have. Um, but, yeah, um, you know, I don't know. I mean, <laughs> I guess it kind of speaks, I guess, right, to the kind of standard, I guess, right, just kind of where the Niners are right now. You know, obviously different teams have different standards for, like, what's acceptable. You know, you're going for, like, a Super Bowl yeah, those things, you know, whatever they saw that they didn't like, obviously that's big enough of a deal for them, right? I mean, you're in the middle of the standings, probably doesn't get you fired, you know? Um, so can Staley be that guy? I mean, again, he was with the Rams, you know, and I do think that on the Rams, you know, I think in the with the Chargers, kind of as time went on, uh, you know, maybe the players kind of started losing kind of the belief in, you know, in him, right? Uh, just both as a person, you know, uh, and kind of as a strategist, you know, with the Rams, he wasn't there that long, right? And at least like during that time, my sense was that they kind of bought it, you know? And so, yeah, you know, I don't know, you know, he's a, was a good X's and O's guy. I mean, that said, 
you know, we did see with the Chargers. I mean, he brought in, he even brought in his own guys, right? He had he had time certainly to turn that defense around, and it never quite did, you know. So you kind of look back at that that Rams era, and you kind of wonder, well, how much of that was like Aaron Donald, right? I mean, it really helps when one guy is going to take up two or three, you know, blockers at a time, uh, which is kind of what you had with Donald. Uh, so yeah, I I don't, you know, it, it's certainly an interesting call. I mean, just you know. Um, yeah, I don't, to be honest, I don't know, you know, um, <laughs> it is, it, 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 it's, 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 it's a short answer. Name. Yeah. Yeah. I surprised you with that one. And we can tell Dylan's surprised by that one. Uh, I am, you know, Joey Bosa connection and I did talk to, you know, their father, Nick and Joey's father about Nick and he had not a lot of nice things to say about, uh, just the Brandon Staley era there, how happy he was that Harbaugh was a coach. Finally, they got a good coach. So that might be interesting, knowing how important, uh, you know, Nick Bosa, his voice, his opinion matters in that locker room. He's certainly an incredible player. Uh, but maybe it's okay. And again, I don't think Staley's a bad defense corner. I think he's a good defense corner. He comes from the Fangio school and they almost hired Fangio a couple times. That actually was Shanahan's first choice back in 2017 and, and couldn't get him. Uh, and that's when they went with Robert Sala, worked very well. Domenico Ryan's obviously worked very well. And then Steve Wilkes came in, not part of the system, not from that scheme. And the personality didn't really fit. It was just kind of through the whole season. And it, and it looks bad to do it like this. And you, it definitely feels like a scapegoating. And it is partially a scapegoating for a Super Bowl loss. But um, I do believe if you're ready to move on, don't you know delay it just for PR purposes. Just do it. Uh, take the hit. And they're taking a hit. And they should get a hit. This was not a good thing for them, uh, losing a Super Bowl and looking like they're blaming the defensive coordinator, whose defense played pretty well, by the way, against Patrick Mahomes, just not at the end when they had already lost Dre Greenlaw to an Achilles tear. So um, I'm, you know, I'm not a Brandon Staley guy. I wasn't, I just think he looks for the PR stuff. Like the whole contrary to what I just said, he feels like a PR guy. He feels like he's always looking to look good. He's always looking to look at me, Twitter. I'm doing these bold things. And, and maybe as a defensive coordinator, it doesn't matter as much as it did when he was head coach making those, Oh, those gutty fourth down decisions. Bill Barnwell from ESPN is going to tweet about how great I am. That part I did not like. Um, but schematically, if he can figure out exactly what to do with Nick Boza and not screw around with him, because if he starts screwing around with Nick Boza, there will be trouble. There will be problems. Uh, but um, I think it could be, again, I don't know that's who they're going to hire. It's just the name that has sort of emerged. I thought it was going to be somebody from the Seattle system. Maybe they don't have someone. Gus Bradley, the defensive coordinator now. The Colts might not, who's defensive coordinator, the Jets might not be available. You know, they're, they're kind of, uh, you know, parallel moves. So, you know, Brandon Staley's unemployed. Maybe you give it a year. And then, you know, as I kind of semi-joked, if it doesn't work, Robert Sala probably is going to be available next year <laughs> if, I, if I had a guess on that. And you can bring Sala back. But it's just a fascinating, yet another North and South crossover, Dylan, stuff that we come across all the time. If Brandon Staley moves up from the Chargers, uh, it would be a very interesting thing. And to see how he deals with it, see how we, you know, does he try to be Mr. I'm everything, if that's who the foreigners hire. Um, it, Shanahan's never really had a guy like, like that, like, you know, who brings his own, would he bring in his own assistants? I don't think they'd want him to. I think they like their assistants. So, um, 
Chris Gosser, defensive line coach, is like the most important <laughs> assistant coach on the staff. He's a defensive line coach. So uh, all those things being said, it would be fascinating. Uh, we'd have a lot to talk about on the North and South podcast, and we're always in favor of that, Nylan. We're always in favor of that. Uh, what did you think about the hubbub or even just the decision for Shanahan to take the ball to start overtime? Harry's post game said they didn't know all the overtime rules, which I'll just say offhand, I thought was a ridiculous amount of Super Bowl mania reporting uh, that wasn't had didn't have anything to do with anything. But you go ahead, Dylan. You tell me. What- I mean, to be honest, it kind of felt you know I don't know. Uh, I think the bigger trouble to me was you know at halftime when you know the lead was what ten to three. You know, I think you kind of want it to be up 20 something at that point. You know, uh, not that you can obviously Chiefs are a good team. That's not going to happen. But, um, you know, to me, like those overtime calls, I mean, I, I can see the logic, honestly, in taking the ball first. Right. I mean, both teams score. Hey, then it turns into a sudden death game. Right. And you got the ball. That's what you want. Um, I'm not really sure that that's what like kind of lost them the game. You know, again, when when I. To me, just kind of a broader thing, and that's why like I never felt good from like the Niners' perspective. The whole thing was they kind of let Mahomes just kind of hang around, right? They let him hang around, hang around, hang around, and you just kind of had a feeling that at some point Mahomes is going to turn Mahomes, you know? And you kind of go into like an overtime situation. Yeah, you just don't, you know, their defense had been out on the field for a bunch too. Um, yeah, I, to me, that wasn't really the thing, right? I just think that the Niners – had to probably take advantage of kind of some of their earlier opportunities to kind of build a bigger cushion so that when, you know, eventually Mahomes turned into Superman, that they would have enough of a cushion to kind of withstand that, you know? So I, I get, I get why people are upset. Uh, just to me, it just didn't feel like that. That's what determined the outcome of the game. what do you think? Yeah. I mean, I've talked about it. I, I thought it was 50, 50. I understood why they want the ball. You don't want to just give the ball back to Mahomes after your defense was on the field for a long time to finish regulation. Actually stopped him from scoring a touchdown uh, and, you know, was banged up. You had defensive backs on the ground uh, and just turn around and give it right back to Mahomes. I think you're asking for a touchdown from the Chiefs. And Shanahan afterwards said he thought it was a field goal kind of game, which I sort of disagree with. I would have maybe thought about going for it on fourth and four instead of kicking the field goal. But I get what he's saying. If they could have stopped the Chiefs, scored a kick the field goal, maybe you stop the Chiefs and make them kick a field goal because they did have third and six before one of those Mahomes scrambles. And then you get the ball and you it's sudden death and you get the ball first. Uh, that was the thinking. Uh, I know a big deal has been made about the Chiefs celebrating when they found out that the 49ers were going to take the ball. I just think it's a new thing. It's a new rule. How could you know for sure? Um, it lost. So everything you do in a loss can be scrutinized. I don't I. I don't know that the howling over this was quite justified, but it's a Super Bowl. You're going to get hit. And until Shanahan and the 49ers win one of these, you're going to get scrutinized for every single time you don't. That's all understandable. It's a Super Bowl. It's 125 million people watching. Everyone's going to have an opinion. I didn't think that was a big deal. Uh, and I think the whole thing about check and Armstead afterwards saying they didn't under- know all the overtime rules, that didn't change the game at all and they just kind of said i don't know i mean i don't know anybody knew all the rules i was kind of confused there at the end like what happened if time ran out in the first overtime i knew the game wasn't over but i was, wasn't 100 sure what would happen uh at, at that moment so i just think that uh it's super bowl mania you lose 
you're going to get hit with this stuff. You win, then like your next time you go through it, you're you're not scrutinized as much. They just haven't won. And Shanahan absolutely hasn't hasn't won. I just think it gets overblaked, overdone, overblown. But then they fired the defensive coordinator, so like they play into it themselves, even if that was kind of what they might have done, even win or lose, maybe. I think Steve Wilkes might have been fired even if they had won. That just it, the, the culture didn't match. He didn't fit with Nick Boza, you know, bringing him down from and Fred Warner and others, bringing him down from the booth midseason was a sign that it was not going great. Uh, that's a pretty obvious change. Uh, it's a pretty obvious like we so we got to try something here. So we'll see. What, we'll, and then their next guy, you know, I would imagine be more connected to the players or they hope. And, and they won't be going through some struggles. So we'll see. The struggles, unlike that we've gone through with some of the Wi-Fi issues, hopefully wonderful <laughs> our wonderful producer, Michael, will have fixed this all. But uh, I think we've had some bad luck with this one. So uh, let, let's let's jump over to, to uh, the Warriors calling the, the Lakers about LeBron James last week. I mean, certainly a bombshell report from ESPN. Totally interesting thing. I was not surprise because frankly i think joe leg calls about everybody he just does and he's called about lebron james over the years not expecting a, a, a thumbs up not but i also think there was some passive aggressive lakers in this saying hey lebron if you want to be traded here's the here's the warriors you go ahead uh it's definitely a little clunky between the lakers and lebron or a lot clunky lebron can be this way we know and we know the Lakers can kind of feel like LeBron. If you really don't want to be one of us, then let's just move on. Uh, how do? You, what was your read of that whole Warriors Lakers LeBron three way conversation? Yeah, you know, I think every team that's kind of worth its salt, right, will check in on star guys. You know, I mean, there's it's a matter of due diligence. Uh, the interesting part was that this came out, that this came publicly. I assume, you know, uh, right, and Ramona Shelburne does a great job of covering this stuff. I assume it came out of the Lakers side. I think your uh, assumption's correct on that, Dylan. And, you know, uh, watching LeBron, there's a little bit of like A-Rod in there, right? It's this kind of passive aggressive, <laughs> you know, I think there are like a lot of similarities there. And That's I wouldn't be surprised. Good. That's pretty good. That's a pretty good. I wouldn't point. be surprised that actually, you know, similar to A-Rod, that like if LeBron kind of emerges, you know, in retirement as kind of more like a likable personality because he's not, having to kind of perform, perform for the cameras all the time, right? I mean, he's very kind of self-conscious of the image he projects, but is almost too transparent in like wanting to like look cool all the time, you know? And yeah, it gets tiring, I think, right? And, you know, it, it kind of takes me back to pre, pre-COVID, pre you know? Uh, there was that trade deadline where, you know, the, they're trying to get Anthony Davis. Uh, they couldn't get him out of New Orleans immediately. Uh, you know, LeBron gets upset kind of goes again on one of these passive aggressive things you know Jeannie bus gets upset i mean to her credit she does kind of hit that point it seems where okay you know what like i ultimately like i'm the boss and she will kind of put her foot down you know she did then uh to me this kind of feels like that again it's like okay well you want to go go then you know because i think it's this kind of weird game of chicken right i mean i think lebron knows that you know and this is this has not been a well-run organization really and lebron james has to his, you know, in his defense, really papered over a lot of things that have gone wrong here. Um, you know, he keeps them, he guarantees that they'll be relevant, you know, after years in which they weren't, frankly, right, relevant, right? And so, you know, I think he understands what he brings. And now he's kind of saying like, well, like in exchange for that, like I want, you know, you to kind of build a certain type of team around me, and which is always not, not always possible. I mean, at the end of the day, though, 
you know, one of the reasons I think there's kind of been this assumption too, right, which again, I don't think is necessarily wrong, is that he wants to be in LA, you know? And so it's like, well, you kind of can't have it both ways, right? Either, you know, if you're going to be in LA, uh, there are going to be certain realities of just where this franchise is right now, things they can and can't do, um, you know? And obviously, and look, I don't blame him. He's trying to extract, you know, whatever he can to enhance his legacy. He knows he's near the end of it. Another championship obviously would be, you know, certainly not another, you know, feather in his very decorated cap, um, you know, but I think from the Lakers standpoint, it's like, hey, we're trying to do, we've, we've, you know, we're bending over, you know, to serve you at every possible turn that we can. Uh, this is just something we kind of can't do right now. We can't trade everybody. Um, and so, hey, if you want to go, go, you know, and I think it was just kind of the Lakers saying, okay, enough is enough. Yeah. And by the way, he's, they've done a lot of trades for him. I mean, they've done a ton of things for him. Some good, some bad. I mean, they got Russell Westbrook because he wanted him and that did not work out. And then, then, then LeBron's like, Hey, let's let's get rid of this guy. Why don't you get rid of this guy? Like LeBron, you wanted him. And there's been other players they've acquired all the moves they made last, you know, trade deadline, which were good, uh, which helped get them to the Western conference finals, beat the warriors in six games um now aren't looking so great and now he's like it's just i think that is the the element here is it's not like we've said no to you lebron it's like we've traded a whole lot of people for you a whole lot of draft picks maybe some of them weren't the greatest moves and maybe some things the lakers have done outside of lebron haven't been great coaching hires whatever but like you we're doing the stuff that you asked us to do and to you know throw you up your arms in exasperation like take some accountability for this lebron like take some like okay maybe some of the things i wanted weren't the greatest and let's see what you can do um and the owner does have to think about 2029 and 2030 and all these picks that he's so happy to trade off i get that he doesn't care about it but it's hard to like stomp your feet and say oh they want to you know they won't mortgage their entire future after i'm gone well at some point like they do have to look about that yeah and i think it's one thing too honestly had he taken accountability for the westbrook thing Mm -hmm. you know which he did you know i can't remember kind of i remember late in that season with you know i asked him basically about that well i mean you were part of this thing right Mm -hmm. Oh no no you know I'm just a player here. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean sure they might have asked player it was kind of along the lines like sure they might have asked me for my opinion but you know ultimately this was not my call you know and it's kind of like okay come on man you know and that's where again right it's it's I think if it's a guy that kind of like owns it right you know, the guy that's out there, you know, saying, hey, you know what? We lost. It's my I'm the best player on the team. It's my fault. Uh, I think it might be a little bit easier to stomach. But like in this case, again, it's kind of a Roddy. Right. So, yep, you yep, know, yep. Um, you know, the, the one thing, though, is right, is like in terms of I mean, we've seen a lot of these kind of super team, you know, right. When they're young, it's a super team. When it's a bunch of old guys getting together, it turns into kind of like a Frankenstein experiment. But like this would have been like the ultimate <laughs> Uh, right. I mean, the two best players of this era, Steph and LeBron. Yeah. Yeah. Same team. How do you think that would have worked out? Yeah, I think it might have been OK for a short term. That The fascinating thing is LeBron's so different than Steph or should we say Steph is so different than LeBron. He's like he does have opinions. He does like quietly, like, you know, advise on things. But he will admit when you know what I kind of wanted that guy and maybe I was wrong. Like he will do that. He will like some things I wanted and now turns out these other guys are good. Like 
that there was much more like I've seen what happened and, you know, or, or, or there, there are times where he wanted something and, and it would have worked out if they did it his way. But he's very logical about it, right? He's very rational about it for a superstar. He's the most rational superstar I've ever covered. Uh, and um, he doesn't, he's not passive aggressive. He just doesn't play those games. Whatever he's going to do, he's going to do with, you know, with Joe Lacob, with Steve Kerr, with Mike Dunleavy Jr. in the past, with Bob Myers. Like, you you do go to him. You should go to him. But he's not demanding things. He's not certainly not tweeting hourglasses and, you know, eyes emojis and all those things. So to put him with LeBron, which are very opposite people, you know, in, in concurrent era, have, have competed against each other, would be fascinating. But, like, Steph's the guy that everyone can play with. Kevin Durant comes in there, and you can work with him. Uh, things would have been different. I'm not sure how that would have fit with Draymond or, you know, and clearly clutch was part of this. So it's not like Draymond would have been traded for him. Uh, maybe it would have been Chris Paul plus someone else, but also you'd want Chris Paul with, with, you know, LeBron, cause that's the whole banana boat buddies. So I'm not sure, you know, maybe it would have been clay or whatever. I don't think it ever came close. Whatever names you throw out there, Kaminga and clay, whatever it would have been. Uh, but I think Steph and Draymond would have, you know, worked to have this, you know, not be terribly, you know, uncomfortable, at least for a year. I don't know what he would have done after this season. He has a player option and he may or may not exercise that in L. I assume he will, or at least renegotiate, get a new deal. I don't know what would have happened if he was with the Warriors. I don't know that any of that was all the way thought out. I just think the late uh, Warriors thought, okay, if he wants out and we can exchange Clay Thompson's contract for him, you know, I mean, that's uh, how is that a losing situation? I did ask Steph about it a couple of days ago. And he's like, you know, you never know all the stuff that's going on. Like he was hinting like this, this conversation happens a lot. It just doesn't happen to get reported because the other team doesn't often, you know, talk about it or, or theoretically talk about it. Um, we don't know that's where it came from, but I'll just say, I don't think it came from, from the Warriors, but uh, like, Hey, it's LeBron. Like, you know, what are you going to do? Not call. I mean, it's kind of, if LeBron was up for it and the Lakers would have done it and you could do, you know, Moses Moody, Clay Thompson, and a, and a first round pick for, for LeBron James, you do it. So uh, I just think that uh, it's just a very interesting kind of comparison of two franchises, comparison of two legendary players, uh, where you certainly weren't talking about trading Steph Curry to the Lakers, right? That, that phone call would never happen. It wouldn't happen. And the fact that it did happen, it got all the way to LeBron's people talking, you know, to, with Joe Lacob or whoever they talked to, because Jeannie said, go ahead and call him. <laughs> I mean, uh, it's just an interesting situation. You would never, not never, but it would not have gotten to the point where the Lakers would even feel like they could acquire Steph Curry. Like that wouldn't have happened. Yet it was to the point where the Warriors had a conversation with LeBron's representatives, whether he wanted to be traded, and Jeannie Buss was okay with that conversation. Just an interesting way to think about this. Durant joined Steph, right? Steph didn't join Durant. You know, these, you know, it's an interesting way to look at who Steph Curry is and who the Warriors are, that it's always them trying to get these players. They would love to have Giannis. They would, you know, they wanted Anthony Davis. Like it's never Steph or Draymond there. Sometimes Draymond's talked to other teams, but it's never been serious. Go joining other teams. Uh, and I just think that's the way I look at it. Maybe that should have been a column at some point. Uh, it's just a fascinating way to look at these two careers. LeBron's the one that's gone from Cleveland to Miami, back to Cleveland, to the, to the Lakers. Been incredible. Best player of this era, maybe the best player ever. But Steph Curry has never been, other than teams like going, God, it would be great to have Steph, but there's never been a moment where 
you thought that the Warriors would say, okay, you want to go, go. That's just never happened. And I don't think it's going to happen. Uh, and that's how I looked at this one big picture. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of when you talk about, right. I know a lot of times like sports writers <laughs> like me, like to throw out the word culture, you know, out there a lot. And what does that mean exactly? Right. I mean, and that's, you know, Steph obviously is a big part of that culture. Right. I mean, like you he said, is right? the, right? he is the culture, you know, he is yeah, the culture. you know, but you know, it, part of it is that it's, it's that though, right. It's kind of the personalities on the team kind of combined with kind of this larger framework. Right. And, you know, they're obviously kind of like you said, like it, Golden State, it's working out. You know, Lakers here, this thing is very fragile. You know, yeah. um, you know, I know my colleague Bill Plaschke has kind of been pushing, get rid of LeBron, get rid of LeBron. But like, man, you know what that's going to look like? Yeah, right. I mean, great. they, yeah. oh, you're going to love this segue. They're going to turn into the Angels without Shohei Otani. <laughs> <laughs> Not ever. They're never going to be the Angels. Never going to be the Angels. <laughs> Not that low. Come on. First, you compare LeBron to A Rod, and now you're comparing the Lakers to the Angels. A Rod was a great player, man. <laughs> Generational talent. Oh, my. Yeah, really, really popular guy, too. Really popular guy. Uh, LeBron's got a few more championships than A Rod, but uh, I hear what you're saying. And it is like Austin, the Austin Reeves era of the Lakers might not be the prettiest in the whole world. I don't even know who else they would have long term there. If LeBron goes, Who's long term? It's Austin yeah, Reeves make- and ugh, because I would imagine AD would be like the next one out. Like I mean, there's just I don't know if you keep AD if LeBron's around. And I'm trying to think who would be on this team. Jalen Hood, Shafino. <laughs> I mean, who, yeah. who else would be on this team? Yeah, I mean, you know, I'm, yeah, it's kind of. I mean, I think that they would almost have to kind of build around AD though. Right now, yeah, maybe he's I don't know if he would, yeah, he didn't like it in New Orleans when he was they were doing that. So yeah, you know, uh, and he's older now. I don't know. Yeah, maybe would be have trouble getting. You know, this is the thing too, though. It's like you know, you kind of forget that between you know, like Kobe or even before Kobe was even gone. Right? I mean, they were having trouble getting like interviews with guys. Yeah, like I don't think they right. I mean, if I'm, I think when Durant signed with Golden State, I he mean, wouldn't, he wouldn't even talk to the Lakers. He wouldn't talk to them. You know, no. no. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, this is not you know again. It's you pull that LeBron pin out of this thing, it's, that whole thing unravels. Uh, it's gonna point. be, it's gonna be bad, you know. And look, Davis is at a point in his career, you know, he, he kind of is who he is. He's gonna miss a chunk of games every single year, uh, you know, in terms of like the type of money. Is that right? Is, is that elsewhere? I don't know. Like, he might, you know, the realities at this point might just be, you know, for the lack of a better term, he's almost kind of stuck here. Yeah. You know, you know what the Lakers would think if they, if Le- LeBron moves on, let's say he doesn't pick up that option, they think they'll go get someone else. Like, yeah. yeah, and maybe they would. Like they're the Lakers, right? They they are a team of statues, a team of Hall of Famers, a team of very, you know, you just people grow up wanting to play for the Lakers. But I don't know what who that player would be. Yeah, and that's the you thing, know? right? I mean, because they were talking, you know, right? There was, you know, you'd kind of hear just kind of in the the hallways, right? You know, old Luca, whatever. Well long-term deal now Giannis whatever same thing right and so all these guys are kind of getting snapped up now and yeah who I got is that guy I, I don't I got one you know. for, I got one for them Paul George how about Paul George I mean that's not a superstar but right you know already in LA well we'll see this is fan- we could have done a whole show on it we should have started on this this is good stuff <laughs> yeah. uh, but we, since we're the Otani uh, unofficial Otani podcast and you are the I'm putting you on like you are the official Otani documenter uh, and you are, again, you are a personal hero of people in Japan. I know you are uh, a hero to my people, to our people. Uh, 
you were in Arizona for the Otani first spring training moments. You've written about it. Um, we've talked about like, what's that clubhouse going to be like? What's the, uh, you know, just the players seeing all the media and just the fuss that Otani brings to him. I read your stuff. You seem impressed by the way things have been handled and the way that Otani's handling it. Uh, what did you see? What did you feel out there in, in, in the Dodgers spring training? Yeah. So, I mean, it's him plus everybody else. Right. Um, you know, and actually, and maybe this kind of illustrates kind of the level to where this is at, you know, as, before I sat down to write the most recent column that I wrote, the guy that I called was Henry Shulman to ask him about <laughs> hey, the bond, your guy. Hank. To, to, <laughs> Hank, to ask about the, the Giants era, you know, the, mm -hmm. the Bonds era Giants, right, where you had one now obviously much different personalities uh, and kind of here, right, Otani, you know, in Japanese, they call it like reading the air, you know, kind of like reading the room. Uh, this guy's really sharp. Uh, he's also very kind of likable. He, you know, he doesn't mind laughing at himself. Uh, he's got a nice smile, which as stupid as it sounds, I think I've said this before, I think it matters like a lot in this country, right? It projects a certain warmth, uh, you know, and even a guy, I think like, you know, I, I, cause I kind of wonder privately, you know, how guys like Mookie Betts and Freddie Freeman are feeling now, right? I mean, they were taking batting practice on one field the other day. Uh, Otani shows up to take BP on the other. All the fans that were at the Freeman Betts field ran to the other, right? I mean, at the, at this point, it's like they're minor leaguers, you know. Uh, at some point, you know, Betts and Freeman to kind of get to the locker room had to cut through the field that Otani was hitting on. <laughs> no reaction, yeah. no reaction, you know. And it really is kind of Otani and then kind of everybody else. I mean, the locker room and the Dodgers spring training clubhouse is pretty spacious. Uh, but there were probably a good, you know, I mean, on the peak day, there were probably like 80 reporters in there, right? When the local LA TV stations all kind of came in at once, right? I think so we had like four or five local TV stations, plus all the Japanese stations, all the Japanese media. Uh, yeah, players aren't really going in there. Right. Um, you know, when they caught Mookie at his locker one day, I mean, it turned into, you know, a 60 person scrum. Right. A lot of these kind of right. I mean, Tim, you've done these right. The start of spring training, you know, where's your head and how are you, you know, where are you type of stories that would have been, frankly, uh, based on like one on one interviews. You know, you can't you, the, the windows of getting these guys are so small now, even though I was asking a lot of these questions, say to like Walker Bueller or Mookie Betts. It was a one-on-one. -on -one, it felt like a one-on-one -on -one interview that was witnessed by 60 people, mm -hmm. you know? And while obviously as a reporter, I don't like that because it's almost like you're kind of doing everyone's work for them. You kind of didn't really have a choice at this point, right? Um, you know, the PR staff was so overwhelmed. Again, usually when I come in, I'll tell them, I want this guy, I want this guy, I want this guy. We'll kind of set up times and stuff. Uh, they've got so much other stuff to worry about that that's not even possible. You know, so there is this kind of, yeah, it's, it's very overwhelmingly just kind of Otani's a star. There's everybody else, you know, but kind of the latest thing that I wrote was just that because he's so likable, right, maybe they can kind of, it, it makes this easier to navigate, right? Because the thing is like a guy like Bonds that like, you know, people are either like afraid of or just kind of like downright dislike, right? You kind of wonder, why do we have to do all this for like this guy? Otani's at least kind of likable enough to where I think, you know, people are kind of starting to soften, right? I, you know, I led the previous, you know, my most recent column with how, you know, Freddie Freeman was telling a story about how his son met Otani at an All-Star game a few years ago. And after Otani signed, the first thing Otani asked him is, hey, how's Charlie? 
you know, mm-hmm. not just that he, he didn't just remember the, you know, that he had a son that he met, but he also remembered the kid's name, you know, and I can tell you, like, as a parent, like little things like that matter a lot, right? Yep, I mean, sure, this is, sure. You know, and so I think, you know, he's kind of right, kind of, you know, he's gotten along a lot really well with Telscar Hernandez, of all people, you know. Uh, which I guess kind of when you look at it, it doesn't, it kind of makes sense, right? Usually the, the Latin guys tend to be a little bit more, you know, friendly and less like status conscious, you know, so they're kind of chatting it up. And I think for the most part, right, except for like, as far as like when they're interacting with them, he's kind of like a fairly uh, normal down to earth guy, right? He doesn't kind of, you know, um, but you were around during those like bonds, yeah. era, right? I mean, I was I was there a little bit too, not probably as much as you were. But what do you kind of remember about well, that? And I mean, yeah, I mean, it know? was never, yeah, it was never a warm relationship. But remember, there's like bonds when he was great before the steroid stuff, and then bonds with the steroid stuff with the home run chase. So you had it wasn't just like media attention; it was scrupulous media attention. <laughs> it was aggravated media attention. It was, you know, you guys are just doing this because you hate me, you know, and, you know, whatever elements of the personalities back and forth. It was uh, a lot of extra stuff with that one. Uh, but like if we can try to separate some of the, the, the steroids stuff, the Balco stuff, yeah, it was a guy who did not want to be hanging around with his teammates. Frank, he just did not, who had a bad relationship with Jeff Kent, you know, the second best player on that team. Now, Kent had his own issues. Kent was one of those weird baseball weirdos you know so i'm not trying to say that he was representative of everything but no it, it definitely felt like a separation and that bonds had his own rules never took the team picture like never like stuff like that uh and, and it was just a million little things that bonds would do he would sleep in his you know had his own chair you know recliner and would sleep in there in the clubhouse and then you tiptoe around him and then sometimes he would want to talk to to the media sometimes he wouldn't and that that creates a mood, right? That's and, and Dusty Baker, when he was the manager, did, did a pretty good job of trying to balance that out, but understanding how great Bonds was as a player, and you you accepted that. But I do think that, yeah, the personality does matter. Uh, now, listen, if there's all this hubbub around Otani's not helping the team, I think that would change the mood in there. Uh, and I'm curious how, you know, Yamamoto is in through all this. Is he's like, ignored, or is he just part of the, the, the Otani scene? But with Bonds, it was just such a separation. It was Bonds over there who often wouldn't talk, who often, you know, the other players had to try to explain because he was being so gruff. And they didn't particularly love him themselves, but they loved what he had that he helped them so much as a player that you had this divide, clear divide of Bonds is separate, everyone else is over there. I think from what I'm hearing, when I'm just seeing Otani will try not to do that there will be some of that he has his routine especially like when he's pitching maybe right now it's just a hitter it can be more relaxed because he won't have the pitching routine to go through but man when he has the pitching routine and the hit that that might be be a little stratifying i think it kind of was with the angels but with bonds it was he wanted that stratification he wanted everyone to know i'm barry bonds and motherfuckers you're not you're not barry bonds and that over you know day after day after day of a long baseball season of media having to try to deal with that too and then having to deal with the other players really really accumulates and then you add the balco stuff you know that just dropped on them in you know in this already tense situation it just made it 
outlandish. It made it really bad to deal with. And I don't think it's a total shock that they did not win, you know, a lot of games and they won decent amount, but they didn't win any world series. They went to a world series against the angels. They lost it. Uh, that was pre most of the Balco stuff and the Balco stuff drops on them. Bonds keeps having great years and they did not have great teams. They did not. And then Canton has to go and they, you know, they shuffle all these other people in there just kind of built around Barry and it, it wore on people. Um, it wore on the franchise, the, the things you have to do. And I, I tell this story and you know, he, he was older by the time that he was a free agent and they weren't going to, they announced that they, he wasn't coming back that last home game after, you know, battling, you know, the PR people were battling with me and other people. They were, we were being unfair. It was pretty small time. It was small time. The giants were, they're not a small time operation. They're acting small time about that because they had to defend this false notion that Barry was one of everybody. We go to the, after that game, we all ended up at a bar across the street and it was like members of the organization, the media, and it was like a party. Like I, Barry I was, was there. Or, yeah. The, you they, remember? They me out because I was, it was my first year on the Dodger beat. The Dodgers were out. Mm-hmm. They told me, Hey, just like, it was weird. Like I flew, I didn't think I made pregame availability. He's mm-hmm. like, just get up there. Forget about it. Dodgers are out. Yeah. And everybody was there. It was nuts. It was, I mean, it, was a, it was a really good time, actually. It was it was the best time I've had around Giants people. Uh, I've had good times with Giants riders, but Giants like the Giants PR person is not there anymore. Hasn't been there for a long time. It was like buying drinks. I'll put it that way. Uh, who I did not get along, and I do not get along with. Uh, and we had major issues over the Bond stuff. I thought he was being small timer, uh, not understanding the bigger picture. I wasn't taking personal shots of the team. I was just taking the shots at them for enabling this guy uh, and through all this steroid stuff. But then it just kind of, there was just release. There were players there, Dylan. There were like players there. And it was just like, it's over. Now, listen, they weren't going to be a very good team, but the fact is they won a world series like three years later. Like they had to get past that situation to let the Buster Posey, Bumgarner, Lincecum era really take away. Now, Lincecum was on that team, by the way. He was a young player on that team. It had to turn over to Lincecum. They were lucky to have a player like Lincecum ready to go. Then they signed Barry Zito and whatever, all that other stuff. But um, that moment is ingrained in my head. And I didn't realize you were there, Dylan. But it was uh, it was an unbelievable everybody, moment. Everybody was there. Yeah, so. It was a release. It was an incredible release <laughs> yeah. of just like we went through this. We didn't like each other maybe through it, but we're now past it. And let's go to the next thing and celebrate that the old thing is gone. I don't expect there to be that kind of thing around Otani, yeah. but that's what the Bonds thing was like. And, and you know, the Balco thing really made everything worse. Yeah. It was just very difficult. And poor, you know, Shulman, he had his other Chronicle reporters breaking all the Balco stuff. And Henry was the one who had to talk to the guy, to Barry uh, and ask him the questions. And it was unfair to Henry. It really was. Um, I thought the Balco, you know, some of them, my friends should have been in there. They never set, set foot in the, in the clubhouse, never once. And I thought it was very unfair to Henry. Um, he took the, the bulk of it and he had known, you know, he knew bonds a long time and that, you know, was a, not a good situation. And I think the reporters who are reporting it should have been in there. And I'll say it, and they'll probably get mad at me for saying it. But uh, I thought that was grossly unfair to Henry Shulman. But he did it. He went through it, and and my respect to him for doing it. Um, Hank Shulman. How about that? A-Rod, <laughs> Hank Shulman, LeBron, all the greats are being referenced here. I, uh, I got a quick ref, you know, uh, kind of what you said, you know, like Bonds wanting to say, you know, like make it clear, I'm Barry Bonds, right? Um, you know, and Otani, if anything, kind of like, 
makes yeah. efforts, it feels to like lower himself, right? And you know, he was. I saw like on social media last night there was a team wide chicken wing eating contest. You know, <laughs> he, he showed up to that. Uh, you know, I asked Roberts if he would kind of subject, um, you know, Otani to kind of the first year player like hazing thing where, mm. you know, like they have like a talent show. Roberts is like, oh, I'm not going to make him do anything. I wouldn't be surprised if he participated in that. And this just kind of reminds me of a, of a funny story that, uh, you know, when I went to go visit his high school years ago, um, you know, the players there live like in a dorm. Right. Um, they're there. They get to go home. This is nuts, man. They So, you know. They live in these dorms. Now, most of them are from the prefecture, but it's still like home might be 30 minute train right away. Right. So everybody lives there. I think they told me players generally went home maybe five days a year. Uh, otherwise, they like lived in the storm 24 hours. And um, yeah, the pitchers on the team, the coach would make them clean the toilets. That was their duty, you know, and his thing was, hey, during the game, you're on the most elevated. You're literally on the most elevated stage, you know. After the game, you're the one that the media is going to want to talk to. So during the other times, you need to kind of like lower yourself, mm. you know, and take care of like the fundamental things that are kind of important. Right. And I've never heard anybody speak so philosophically about toilets. But he said, you know, if you walk into an establishment and you go into the bathroom, you can tell what type of establishment. That's it is, good right. Point. If the I toilets agree. are kind of dirty, you kind of can tell like, OK, this is just like a mid place. Right. Any high, any place that takes itself seriously and holds itself to a high standards have immaculately <laughs> clean toilets, you know? And so again, right, that's kind of, you know, that was those, that was, that was the environment under which like Otani spent his formative years. So, you know, again, my expectation is that he will, you know, uh, metaphorically be cleaning toilets this year. <laughs> wow. Else. Wow. <laughs> wow. That's a nice metaphor. That's a good one. I, by the way, I agree with that guy. I agree with that coach like that. <laughs> you go to a restaurant and there's a sloppy, bad uh, bathroom. You're like going, what the hell are they doing everywhere else? Like, Oh, and actually yeah, another, um, another uh, Bay area tie in here. So that coach, uh, his name is Hiroshi Sasaki, his son, uh, Rintaro Sasaki, uh, last year broke the all-time uh, Japanese high school national record for home runs. Mm. Uh, just signed with Stanford University. Wow. Uh, so that's kind of an interesting path here, right? He was a projected first-round pick in Japan. Obviously, you know, if he had wanted to come to the United States and sign with a major league organization right away, he could have done that. Uh, you know, my understanding is part of the thinking is, you know, I guess if he keeps Japanese residency, he won't have to be subjected to the draft, mm. you know? Uh, right. If you sign with a minor league team, I think they understand here, you know, there's enough of an understanding in Japan that, you know, they're going to send you out into some really rural environment. Right. You might live with like a family or something, you know, only be surrounded by other baseball players might not be the best place necessarily to become acclimated to like American, you know, in the English language and the American culture. You know, here you could do it like in a school setting. So it's going to be really interesting to kind of see how that unfolds there. But there is kind of an old tiny tie in there now at Stanford. So. Real quick, also, you know, again, I'm, I'm planning to uh, advertise this podcast now to all of the great fans in Japan. I've noticed like, in the last week, you know, uh, we love tell them a little bit about about you, maybe, and how the Kawakamis became kind of an important family here, right, in the Bay Area. No, really, right? Yeah. Oh, no, quite. Oh, I mean, listen, uh, my, my I'm a third generation Japanese American. My parents are both second generation. Their parents were the ones who moved from Japan, immigrated like 1880s, 80s, 1890s. 
but my father grew up in uh, in Salt Lake City, uh, working in the salt mines. Uh, my mother is part of a very, very big, strong family in San Francisco, the Abe family. So uh, I have a lot of San Francisco, like the 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 community, the World War post World War II community that really built up strong. Uh, basically helped build, you know, Japantown in, in San Francisco, the post-war culture, the assimilated Japanese, what, maintaining the character. That's my mother's side. Um, and my mother's father, my grandfather, who I never knew died during the war, uh, was a newspaper editor and, you know, started the first Japanese American newspaper, I think, in California. Um, and, you know, that's where probably I get some of my writing. We'll see. But um, that family, the Abe family, uh, very, very important family in San Francisco had been. I'm not part of that. You know, we're a little bit away from that now, but um, with strong ties to this community, to, uh, you know, and the Kawakami family, we might know that my dad married, and then when they got married from the church, the Pine United Methodist Church, very important church in the Japanese community. And there's a lot of Kawakamis out there now, four boys, my three, two older brothers, one younger uh grandkids all these things uh and uh the name is the name is out there and we're very proud of it but it's also the abe family of my mother's side and um you know it's uh we're very proud of this family my my father died a little while ago so we, we a lot of reminiscing a lot of talking about that his you know all his brothers and sisters and my mom's sisters and brothers uh very important generation and that post-war generation you know, many of them out of the camps. My mom was in, in, in a relocation camp when she was very young and coming out of that and establishing a community in the Bay Area, you know, San Jose, very strong Japanese American community, uh, Walnut Creek, strong Japanese American community and San Francisco for sure, Japanese American community. So it's very, very important. Uh, I know friends with you know, the Japanese Community Cultural Center and based in San Francisco is huge. I'm, I do a lot of stuff with them. So, uh, no, uh, this Japanese connection is real. It's in my blood, obviously. And, uh, and it's in your blood too, Dylan. That's what we got. You know, you are, you are part of this community. Uh, people, I tell people still like ja Dylan is a fluent Japanese speaker. Like what? And it's like, it's, it's, it's very, very great. It's great that you have this, you're so you know, these, all these extra layers to yourself. I don't speak Japanese. It's very poorly on my part. I just, we just never learned it again. That was part of the post-war. You don't want to speak Japanese, right? You just were in camps for being of Japanese heritage. So, you know, my parents a little bit, but were encouraged not to speak that much Japanese. So of course I grew up not speaking any Japanese, but Dylan Hernandez can, and you can go to those Japanese press conferences and you can speak to Jap and Japanese audience, and let, let's uh, emphasize that. Let's underline that. Uh, and, and Otani coverage. This is this is your guy who's going to be able to straddle both worlds, and uh, there's great value in that. Yeah, and I think you know a lot of times I think people in Japan, right, will kind of look at those of us that grew up on this side, right, and it's kind of well, they're just Americans, right? No, but there is, no. I think, though, you know, uh, right there, there's certain I think kind of fundamental traits that do get passed down from, you know, generation to generation. There is like this kind of common ancestry. And sometimes I do think that they, you know, a lot of people in Japan will kind of look at us, frankly, right? And, you know, right, like, especially you and I, our personalities, like, man, how can somebody be this bold, <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, you know, but that's the thing, too, though, right, is this is in them, too, in a way, 
right? It's just kind of, right? Our families came here. We yep. adapted to the whatever the situation was, you know? And obviously, I think kind of, right? Whatever we do is kind of, in, in a way, an extension. Well, we'll explain your background, Dylan. We'll explain, explain your background, Dylan. Uh, yeah, so my dad is, uh, uh, he was born in El Salvador, kind of moved here when he was 10, kind of, right? He went to Belmont High School. His best friend actually played in the big leagues for like 10 years, Louis Gomez. He played a lot for the Braves and the Twins. Um, my mother, uh, is like Japanese, Japanese. She didn't come here until she was like in her mid twenties. Uh, they were both living in LA at the time. Cause my mother basically came here to like, she was a nurse in Japan, studied abroad for a year. Uh, the story they tell me was that they were both uh, on vacation in Mexico and they met on a tour bus there. Mm. Uh, haven't tried to grill them too much on the details. <laughs> no. I have a feeling the story might fall apart. <laughs> Don't raise any questions. Your parents. Don't yeah, question parents. them. Don't them. Question you know. <laughs> no, you don't want that. Um, but yeah, that's so, the next podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Investigating the story of Dylan's parents. No, I yeah, but my mom is like Japanese Japanese. Now that says she's from like rural Japan, right? She's from Niigata, mm-hmm. just only rice fields there. Uh, but yeah, she kind of made it a point to kind of really raise us in the culture. I went to a Saturday Japanese school called Asahigakuen, and it was like, you know, this is during the 80s. So it was mostly for kids whose parents were here, like on business for like two, three years. And because education is standardized nationally in Japan, it was for kids, uh, you know, again, so that when they went back to Japan, they could just slide in. Pretty much everybody that I went to school with ended up back in Japan, including uh, the guy that was covering Darvish, Wataru Serizawa. Uh, was I actually a classmate of mine here? Uh, and we met years later covering you, Darvish. So who knew, you know? Um, training so, ground, training, training ground. ground. Dylan Hernandez. Yeah, I don't know why my, my mom sent me there. It was terrible. You know, they would hit you if you messed around. Mm. Well, <laughs> teach know? a little like, discipline. Teach yeah, a little well, discipline. that was part of it, right? So, <laughs> but uh, yeah, so that's a little bit more of, uh, you know, so I, you know, I, again, you know, kind of grew up in the culture a bit so uh yeah so that's been kind of helpful here you know uh, a little bit yeah you know, just a little bit dylan just a little bit yeah uh, but so. yeah no I mean, but anyway if there's anybody who is tuning in because of this i you know i appreciate it i hope that we would give inf- good information from what we know uh perspective you're going to be on the scene i might come down there we'll, we'll see uh, and, um, and, and anything else in the Bay area from our, our vantage points, which are, you know, can be from all, you know, from American viewpoint, from Japanese American viewpoint, from, you know, all kinds of different viewpoints. And, uh, hopefully that, um, it's valuable in some sort of way. And I'm glad that we both can present these differing viewpoints, hopefully in an interesting and opinionated and, and reported and analytical and all these other ways, but that's what we're trying to do with North and South. And, um, I think Dylan can you can vault it out into the the Japanese ether, the the media ether, and I think that would be, do it good for everybody. So, quick uh, greeting for the people of Japan. Nihon no minasan, yoroshiku no Awesome. Keep going. So. Keep going. Uh, I love it. And by the way, you've made me hungry for chicken wings. You made that chicken wing reference. I'm gonna have some. That sounds wings. good. Yeah, yeah, it does sound good. Yeah. I got some. Actually, I've got some. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna eat some very, very soon. <laughs> All right. We had some technical difficulties. We're hoping it can be patched through. It's been great for the last 20 minutes. So I think we're clean on this. We'll see how that first part goes through. But. Dylan, this was a good one. This was a good one. Let's keep going with this. All right. Let's keep going. 
Yeah, I had to unplug my, my unplug my hard line in order to do this. But if we got to do it that way, let's do it. I'm running out of power because of that, but that's okay. Adaptability. Yeah, we we that's the word of the day. Move it around. I'm not just sitting in my recliner telling you to just do but what I do. We have to move it around and make it what's best for the team. All right, everybody. That is the North and South for this week. Thanks, everybody. <laughs>